Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast again and I really, really appreciate your presence. I hope you're having a great time. We are getting ready for the weekend and it's always a great day and always a great time to be on the weekend. Um... So we'll get down straight to it. Um, thank you again, once again, for, for joining me. And I know you've been um, plenty to join me on my previous podcast. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask uh, to my Facebook page. Uh, I have been getting questions and I will answer as best as I can. And uh, more importantly, please share this with your friends, your your families. Have that conversation with, this is to trigger a conversation. So have that conversation with your friends and with whoever you can, your families. Share this with five people. Ask them to share it with five people and so on and so forth. Because we are we are changing every time we have a conversation we are offloading baggage and we are healing uh it because it's our currents that form our waves so we have to have that conversation uh, share our views share our opinions and that is what makes a great civilization that is what makes the vedic civilization a civilization of knowledge and today today we're going to do something called the monastery doctrine um i just bought a book called uh pray written by ian hersey ali uh she is um somalian origin um writer and activist a former a politician uh she immigrated to europe and then to the united states and uh she talks a lot about islam because she's a former muslim and uh she's given up the religion but she wrote she she talks a lot on the internet and if you do see her her shows do absolutely have that conversation or listen to her she wrote a book called pray and i think a couple of other books i just bought it it's fantastic i haven't read it completely uh um she also wrote the book infidel and uh i i i i read a couple of chapters and i just want to read you one of the chapters of um of her book chapter 11 and this is from the book prey p r e y um and um i i wanted to give you an idea of of a very special chapter this is um and i thought maybe you'll like it uh, and so that's why i have absolutely thought about um reading it to you um it's a review on the book and and about this concept of modesty we know that islam talks about modesty and and i would suggest to you to buy the book because it's it's really great um so let's get straight down to it the modesty doctrine so um there is a relationship between increased immigration and um, higher levels of sexual violence in Europe. The next step is to understand that relationship in the way that Europe elites have conspicuously failed to do so. Why would men who have traveled thousands of miles for better life behave this way towards women in their new country? Their naive answer is human biology. It is well established that young men brimming with testosterone are designed by evolution to want uh, to have a lot of sex. But culture and civilization exist in large measure to restrain such primitive impulses. The more important point is that 
is that immigrants' attitudes to women have shaped their, by their circumstances and experiences in their countries of origin. Um, an important part of the story is, of course, the influence of Islam on relations between sexes. But closely related, I shall show in the role of practice that almost certainly predates the rise of Islam, named polygamy. Cultures that tolerate and encourage polygamy tend to impose extreme modesty on women and exclude them from public life. Polygamous cultures, because of the way they turn women into a rare commodity, often produce violent and misogynistic outcomes. A large number of recent migrants to Europe come from such cultures. The most plausible counter-argument that culture does not matter is simply that young men are the population cohort that is most likely to commit sex crimes. And asylum seeker populations are a high a proportion of young men that typical European society does. In Germany in 2017, for example, two-thirds of the asylum seekers were male. Across Europe in 2015, there were 2.6 male migrants for every female. In Italy, the ratio was 7 to 1, and in Sweden, it was 10 to 1. The, by 2017, the overall ratio had dropped to... 2.1 male for every female asylum seeker, but in Italy it was still 5 to 1. Uh, that in 2016, the political uh, scientist Valerie Hudson sounded a warning that societies with disappropriate numbers of young men, unmarried men, are less stable and more violent, especially towards women. Uh, she questioned why Europe would gamble its in viable record on gender equality by bringing in such a large number of unfettered young men. Decades of academic research have linked unbalanced sex ratios with violent crime. Hudson calculated that by the end of 2015, there are 123, there were 123 um, 16 and 17-year-old boys in Sweden for every 100 girls at that age. Such demographic bulges of young men she cautioned, tend to erode the social barriers that create a peaceful society. In response, the Swedish media savaged Hudson. Remember, this is the same uh, thing that's going on in the Asian sub subcontinent, especially in Asia. Why were there so many more migrant males? The German journal the German journalist Maria von Welsler went in search of the missing refugee women, and found most of them stuck in refugee camps in the Middle East. Even though they wished to join their male relatives in Europe, money for travel was tight and families sent strongest ahead. Unpinning the decisions of displaced families is the idea that women, especially women traveling alone, would risk, as they would see, more than just lives as they would as they risk their honor. In the same way, Dominic Kudalek uh, of the Criminology Research Institute of Lower Saxony says the age and sex ratio then culture are the key. The migrants, he argue, are overwhelmingly young and male, demographic responsible for lion's share of crime in near every human society. Um, 
There are plenty of other people saying a lot of other things. Young men commit more crimes in every society. He noted that the majority of migrants perpetrated violent crimes against fellow migrants. Their situation crammed into squalid camps or trapped in bureaucratic limbo while their asylum applications awaited processing helped explain their prosperity to acts of violence. Yet... Um, the authors of the research report uh, researched in Zurich on the violence in Lower Saxony that took a completely different view. They presented an ambiguous framework for understanding the increase of violent crime in Germany at a time of rising migration, distinguished, distinguishing carefully among proximal factors. Um, person of origin, economic circumstances, family circumstances, parental upbringing, school history, substance consummation, friends networks, and leisure behavior, and distal factors. Though acknowledging the significance of the age and gender of the comp and composition of the migrants, as well as the hardships they have faced in getting to Germany and the frustrations of their new lives, um, it was added that most of refugees come from Muslim countries that are characterized by male dominance. Representative surveys conducted by K, um, conducted have shown that young male immigrants from such cultures have internalized so-called violence, legitimizing masculinity norms to far greater extent than Germans or the same age of young men born in Germany who have these country who come from these countries. Their masculinity norms are captured by statements such as the man is the head of the family and may enforce if necessary by force um, or a man who is not ready to defend himself against insults by force is a weakling. Acceptance of such macho culture has proved to be a significant factor in promoting violence in many studies. Rape is a sexual expression of the will to power which nature plants, which nature plants in all of us. Goodness gracious me, that is something that I, I really don't appreciate. Anyway, this is what it says. Rape is a sexual expression of the will to power which nature plants in all of us and which civilization rose to contain. Therefore, the rapist is a man with too little socialization rather than too much rather than too much. The issue, however, is what kind of civilization and what kind of socialization the rapist has experienced. Uh, so social control in Islamic countries, in those parts of the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, where society is stable and order is intact, the individuals are subject to quite stringent social control. Men and women, boys and girls, have their places in that order, which is often rigid, rigidly enforced. In wealthier, um, more complex, cosmopolitan neighborhoods, there is less social control than rural areas, but behavior is still policed by family, religious groups, schools, and surrounding community. Another general point about these societies is, is that men are perceived to be strong and women weak. Men are expected to uh, protect women and children by providing, them, providing for them and, if necessary, fighting for them. Women are expected to nurture their children and submit unconditionally to their husbands. Sex is understood as a necessity to procreate with the context within the context of marriage. An important element of maintaining social order in these societies is keeping male sexual 
sexual desire, which is, seems, which is seen as a powerful force locked within the bounds of marriage. The biggest dread in these societies is fitna, or civil war, which is chaos and breakdown of social order. Male sexuality is seen as one of the key threats to that social order. To manage male sexuality, men are permitted to have more than one wife. Polygamy is encouraged as a matter of necessity to, cr to cushion the, this chaotic force. But marrying more than one wife comes with a burden. Not all men can, can meet religious rule that a husband should treat their wives equally. A more cultural rather than religious uh, phenomenon is that fathers will wed their daughters to highest bidder. Some poverty is in is one of the biggest problems in these societies. This leaves lots of men with their prospect of not being able to marry one's wife, let alone more than one. Needless to say, sex outside marriage is prescribed. Women who engage in it are irreparable repairably tarnished. The consequence of all of this is a great is a great deal of sexual frustration. At the core of this set of norms is the idea that women are commodities valued uh, primarily for their capacity to transmit genetic material to the next generation. Women are invested in and valued not for themselves but the price their virginity can attract in the market, in the marriage market. This explains why a girl virginity is viewed as capital, as something valued to be guarded whereas a boy's virginity is insignificant. It starts early on. Boy babies are favored in most parts of the world, especially in non-Western societies. Young boys are given more freedom to play outside and girls are forced to take on domestic chores. When boys become sexually assertive, they are hardly discouraged, while girls are compared to remain chaste. From the moment she begins menstruating in these societies, a girl becomes an object of arousal for men. Formerly, pubescent boys are discouraged from exploring their sexuality, but in practice, a blind eye is turned to their exploits. A Muslim girl is taught to protect her virginity as an expression to the loyalty of her creator, um, and her family and future husband. Many religions uh, share some ideas about male-female sexuality, to be sure. A number of conservative Jewish communities and Christian denominations have comparable views um, of the innate inferiority of men and women. Um, but because Islam fuses rather than separates politics and religion, the inferiority of women is enshrined in the holy law of the Islamic world. Moreover, although polygamy is illegal in the West, with few exceptions, Muslim men can cite the Quran to justify take up four wives at a time. At the personal level, being a second, third, and fourth wife is a miserable existence. I have written about this in case of my own family. The feminist psychologist Phyllis Chesler and others have, become, have made similar observations. But the social consequences of polygamy to precise poly, uh, polygamy to be precise polygyny affect more than quality of life of the women in such households. The American social scientist Dan Seligson argues that polygamy gives rise to more violent and, and less prosperous societies. Um, 
using the scale, the poly polygony scale, to divide the world's countries into polygamous and non-polygamous societies, the economic historian and McCann's have demonstrated that the, delete, the deleterious effects of pol polygamy upon the social trust, family fornification, fo sorry, family form formation, and economic development. In polygamous societies, family transfer wealth from the bride's family uh, to the bride's family. Women's, women marry young and men marry old. Fertility rates are high. Women are sequestered like commodities. Person-to-person -person trust is low, making an institutional trust very low, they argued. Wherever marriageable women are regarded as commodities, the upper strata of wealthy power men monopolizes the most desirable mates. Since accumulating wealth and status takes time and work for most men, the norm of polygamy pushes up the age of marriage for males, drives down the age of marriage for females, removes the incentives for female educational and economic attainment, and increases the fertility rate. The surplus of unmarried males scrambling for an artificially produced scrambling for an artificially reduced pool of marriageable females spurs on growth of crime and violence. The dual need to protect one's assets and wives prompts the clusteration of women into large extended households revolving around single high-status males. Today, the vast majority of places where polygamy is legal are Islamic-majority countries situated in Africa and Asia. By contrast, every, ever since ancient Greece and Rome went down the very different route to monogamy, the Western world has prohibited polygamy and polyandry. Um, so, in in a typical Silicon Valley style, um, there is one Jewish. I think it's a Jewish scholar. I'm not sure um, what if he's Jewish or not. The American, sorry, American social scientist Dan Dan Seligson spoke quickly. Um, and said, I have run tens and thousands of models and combining parameters to identify the sources of violence against women um, in societies over time. Why I'm tracking is the accumulation of the cultural effects that indicates that attitudes toward women on an average. Um, these attitudes go back well before monotism and they predate even tribal culture. Islam is simply not there. Neither is colonialism. It's polygamy the marriage law and produces distrust and patriarchal violence towards Muslim, towards women. And the historical legacy of polygamy can be tracked down through the generations. It raises social temperature and creating hostile, angry culture. Um, if Dan is right, the West is opening its door to a high number of people who carry with them the whole syndrome of problem in, in it, inherited through polygamy. Sexual harassment is one of them. Groping of women in the street is not just sexual behavior, it's propriety behavior, property behavior. Religiously enforced misogyny. Okay. Um, 
In Muslim societies where social order is intact, women are divided into categories. These divisions are con conventions, some of which are codified while others are not. For inst instance, in an Islamic marriage certificate, a woman is required to conform if she is a virgin. The crucial distinction is between modest women and immodest women. All modest women avoid being out alone after dark, but most women, most important, a modest woman is expected to dress modestly. What does it entail? It requires covering up all your parts of your body that might arouse a man, your hair, your arms, your shoulders, and your legs. A Muslim woman, before you, before she leaves the house, you normally debate whether, she normally debates whether to wear a single headscarf or a full burqa. Short sleeve clothing is not sufficient to meet the modesty threshold. Within the category of modest women, there are four subsections, virgins, married women, divorced women, and widows. A virgin is a young girl lived in her father's house, waited to be married off. She's expected to stay at home, to leave the house only with good reason and only in the company of other family members. Most certainly, she's expected to return to the house before dark. She's been groomed to be a wife and expected to do housekeeping to learn to cook and how to dress. If she shines in these skills from the time of her first period, she's eligible to be married. Once a modest virgin is married, she's expected to maintain the same norms and behaviors in the home of her husband, where she sh moves into second category of modest women, married women. The third subject subcategory is for divorced women. If a marriage breaks down, a woman returns to her father's house or that of the, another male guardian. There she's expected to control, to uphold the same norms and to help in running of the household and rearing of women. Divorced women is still do not go out at night. They protect their reputation in, their ho in hope of another marriage. The final category of modest women is that of widows. Often a brother of a deceased husband will take the widow, widow as his second, third, and fourth wife, and the same norms and behavior will be enforced. These are all the women, regardless of their status, tend to be the enforcers of social norms on their next generation of women, the virgins and the newly married. And all all older women, whether they are divorced or widowed or not, are expected to uphold the perpetuate the modesty doctrine. The most important aspect of their social norms is that the category of modest women are considered protected. They are tr they, they trade off them they the trade-off they make is upholding the modesty doctrine in return for protection from their menfolk. Uh, a man, any man in these societies who became inappropriately, inappropriately towards women by leering at, groping and harassing them, know that there will be consequences. The men in women's family will gather together and plot their revenge, usually by violent means. Their violence is directly not only against the man considered to be the transgressor, but also against the family and the extended family, for example, with rapes. In these societies, there is an, another over-aching, arcing category of women, the immodest. If a modest if a woman breaks the rule or is perceived to have broken the rules, her family protection will be withdrawn, whether she's a virgin, married, divorced, or widowed. If she works outside the house, if she moves 
uh, around freely in public without a chaperone, if she ignores the modesty dress code, she is deemed immodest. A woman who has no male relatives to protect her by default also is considered immodest. Women can be protected with this unprotected status are seen as fair game for other men. They can be leered, harassed, groped, or sexually assaulted because the perpetrators have no consequences to fear, whether because there is no one to retaliate or behalf of or on behalf of her, of her because the woman is simply thought to be asking for it. Um, one Algerian author says um describe the system as sexual misery for both men and women throughout the Islamic world. More than any other major religion, Islam formalizes the subordination of women. Islamic religious law, as codified by the official schools of Sunni Islamic law, the Hanabili, the Shafi, the Hanafi, and the Maliki schools, insist on male guardianship over women. In Islam, any woman must be the guardian, vali, um, must have a guardian, a vali, as one of her closest male relatives if she's unmarried, her husband if she's not. This remnant 7th century Arab culture, which has spread to Islam, to the other parts of the world are now um, that are now Muslim majority, has been re revisited in official schools of Islamic law. Uh, imams and other Islamic religious leaders continue to chastise women for disobeying the modesty doctrine. They cite passages of the Quran to assign girls a position in the families that requires them to be docile, to depend on male relatives for money, and to submit to their husbands' dominions over their bodies. Um, Marriage is typically arranged and there is often an exchange of money in the process. Under religious rule of Islam, it is still common today that women's rights are essentially sold to a man she may not even know. Religious teachings from 12th century is still cited in mosques today, distinguish some women as virtuous and chaste by nature and others as licentious. Western women as far back as the Crusades are described by Muslim historians as historians, as immodest, who glowed with ardor for carnal intercourse, offering themselves in for sin. There were all licentious harlots appearing proudly in public, um, inflamed, tinted, and painted. Uh, painted desirable and appetizing, blue-eyed, grey-eyed, broken down a little, broken down little fools, abandoning all decency. In the Quran, verse two point two two three, your wives are a tilt, are as a tilt unto you. So approach your tilt when and how you wish. And when the man invites his wife to his bed, she should satisfy him, even if she were on the camel's saddle. Um, Shahihul Jami. Um, it was passages like this that the ISIS used to justify bullying, selling, and raping of Yazidi women in Iraq. The women were not sexually enslaved because of their ethnicity. 
rather treated as um, the Quran ordains non-Muslim women should be treated. Under Islamic law, such, uh, such as governs Saudi Arabia, Iran, and parts of Nigeria, the civil rights of women are radically circumcised. The threat of violent punishment in, in the form of whipping and stoning makes the prospect of sexual freedom all but impossible for women. In, if raped, a woman in a territory governed by Sharia law has to bring for witnesses to subs substantiate her accusation. As one expert on Islamic law pointed out, a worst case scenario would be if the hostile Sharia judge, judge decided that without witnesses there is neither proof of violence, nor the accused men were involved. So there is no zina for him, while the women's accusation must be considered admission of sexual relations with an unspecified man as punishable. In some cases, pregnancy of an unmarried woman is considered proof of fornication when in fact the woman was raped. The victims are blamed for sexual assault and fact and face ostracism. Reporting rape to the police can make a victim's plight worse if she is the perpetrator's family and seeks vengeance. When sexual violence occurs in holy places, victims are encouraged to cover up as of to protect the sanctity of religion. Just like systemic child abuse in Catholic Church, victims of sexual violence in Mecca are told to keep quiet as so not to tarnish their religion. Uh, Mona Etaway was groped by policemen and fellow pilgrim as a young girl while she prayed at the Hajj, at, at the Hajj in Mecca. She did not tell anyone out of shame and later, even now when I do talk about being groping during the Hajj, I get accused of making it up or told that I'm malignant Islam. Um, there were others who were, have the same experience. This framework, um, you might say, sorry, that there are horrible things that happen to Muslim women in Islamic countries. That's true. But most Islamic women expect it. She's used to it. It's terrible. But it's something that she already knows about. That that is not the case with foreign or Western wives in a Muslim country. This framework has yet another layer of complexity in societies where social order has broken down due to civil war, famine, drought or economic collapse. The moral order protecting modest women is dismantled and after social breakdown in men and women who have passed the norms beforehand, the moral enforcers either are weakened or no longer in the picture. For example, the men conscripted into militias like those in Eritrea. The disruption of these societies um, um, have lasted for decades. The civil war in Somalia has been going on since 91, and many children born into that context grow up witnessing this anarchy. Fighting in Afghanistan has been going on since the 70s. Uh, though their descent into violence has been more recent, Iraq and Syria are not a great deal better. The main place asylum seekers are fleeing uh, from what are failed states that with broken social orders. Uh, failure of secular states in these countries help explain the resurgence of Islam as a political as well as spiritual force. Um, Islamicism has become the go-to heaven haven for them seeking order um, and from this chaos. Um, and basically, uh, that's it. For example, immodest woman is no longer considered simply immodest. She is a adulterous sinner who must be flogged and stoned. 
Yes, my friend, uh, this is the modesty doctrine of Islam. Uh, there's a lot to it, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because I cannot read the whole thing, but this is by and large what happens in Islamic countries. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up to you is because Islam ruled the Indian subcontinent for 1,300 years, and they still rule the ecosystem in a lot of places. We know that. It's not gone. It's still there. It's just in the back, though. There's a curtain. There's a Teflon coating on top of it. It's called Islamophobia. So the Islamophobia is a Teflon coating to protect them from the accusations of what what is being transpired in rape, sex, um, women um, subjugation. We see the burqa come out now. The hijab is being enforced. That is a resurrection of the. Uh, that is the way to keep their women in in uh, in um, keep their women as uh, as chaste uh, as modesty, but also keep them subjugated and and. And once they're subjugated, they can produce generations and generations of of people to resurrect their empire through demographic, uh, demographic, um, you know, uh, change, invasion, should I say, a change in the demographics of the of the land. And so that's important to say. Um, Yes, effectively. And and it's very, very, very important to say. So it's basically, by and large, to give you an idea of what's going on. And this is coming from a Muslim woman, and she used to be Muslim. Um, I'm, I'm sure most of you already know that. It's to understand, basically, uh, from their point of view exactly, and, the, and what is going on, and the lies being told that this is all modesty. This is not modesty, this is slavery. A dharma, as we say. Uh, and it's important to read about it. Um, the book is called Pray. It's written by Ayan Hirsi Ali. You might like it or not like it, um, but it is important to have a point of view. So if you do get it on, on any uh, website, um, please do go ahead, buy it, and um, read about it. It, it is a good, um, there's a good insight into um, the life uh, a misogyny of the Islamic world and uh, their trials and tribulations against women and how they treat them. Um, um, and uh, the reason I'm talking about it is also because I want to talk about what's going on in Sweden, the rape epidemic that's going on in Sweden um, uh, for migrants going to that land. And uh, we'll talk about it some other time, but for now, we'll let you go on this note because we've already spoken for half an hour. And I wish you all the best. I hope you have a great, great uh, day. Um, and a great weekend ahead. Thank you very much for joining me on my podcast. Do share it with as many people as you can. And cheers and stay safe.